you pray with me? Oh God, in the stillness, come meet us. Amen. So this past Christmas time, the nativity scene that probably attracted the most attention was the one at Claremont United Methodist Church in Claremont, California. You might have seen it. It was circulating around on Facebook, but their outdoor nativity showed baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph in separate cages as migrants or refugees. And the congregation's pastor, Reverend Karen Clark Ristine, explained on her Facebook page, she wrote, in a time in our country when refugee families seek asylum at the borders and are unwillingly separated from one another, we consider the most well-known refugee family in the world. Now Jesus and his family fled political and religious persecution. And these two, political and religious persecution, continued to be present-day grounds for granting asylum and refugee status. However, according to a handbook for immigrants from the Church World Service Immigration and Refugee Program, they state, if the Holy Family arrived at a U.S. border today, it is most likely that Jesus would be sent to a children's detention center Mary to a woman's detention center, and Joseph to a men's detention center. Each would be required to secure their own legal help or plead their case on their own for asylum. Now let me be clear that this has been the case for a long time in the U.S., independent of which political party has been in power in the White House. America has long failed to treat immigrants and refugees in a biblical way. But coming on the heels of Christmas, this part of the biblical story is a part where we tend to focus on the dreams that Joseph had or on the Holy Family's journey to safety. Both are important aspects of the story, but they aren't the whole story. This part of the narrative in the Gospel of Matthew brings front and center the presence of evil injustice and depression. Here we see a ruler with too much fear and too much power. We see regular people at the mercy of a tyrant. We see people without financial means impacted the most dramatically and the most negatively. Now in our Wesleyan tradition, we consider baptism to be a gift from God, a sacrament in which God acts and we receive grace. But in the midst of that ritual, we are invited to make a covenant with God. And since the earliest of times, the vows of Christian baptism have consisted first of the renunciation of all that is evil, and then the profession of faith in Christ. And so in this New Year's Revolution series, we're focusing on the second question of our baptismal vows, which is this, do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? So last Sunday we talked about accepting the freedom and power that God gives us. And today we look at that next part, to resist evil, injustice, and oppression. We're continuing on with the story from the Gospel of Matthew, 
We read last week how the Magi visited Jesus and his family in their home in Bethlehem. And while they were on the way to get to the house where Jesus and his family were, they reached the point where they weren't sure if they were going in the right direction, and they stopped and asked King Herod for the location of the newborn king. Now Herod didn't know anything about a newborn king, so he asked them to come back, to return to him and tell him where they had found the newborn king. But once the Magi made it to Jesus' home, they were warned in a dream to return to their home country by another road, and they exercised the power they had. They didn't go back to tell Herod the location of the child. And our reading today picked up where we left off last week. Herod figures out that the Magi aren't coming back. And he's mad. He's not only mad, but he's fearful. He has a lot of power, and he wants to keep that power at all costs. So he calculates the approximate age of this newborn king according to the information the Magi had given him. And then he lashes out at the most vulnerable in his land by ordering the death of any child two years old or younger. Jesus, Joseph is warned in a dream that he must take Mary and their son to safety in the country of Egypt, which of course is the, in the northern part of the continent of Africa. They're crossing international borders, but they don't have time to apply for a visa or properly register their travel. They don't have time to pack much, if anything. They leave in the middle of the night in hopes of journeying to safety. Now, we often, me included, imagine Mary and Joseph's journey as something maybe kind of like this. Peaceful, serene. You know, it's just the same as when they went to Bethlehem. Joseph's leading the donkey, Mary's riding, except this time she's holding the baby Jesus in her arms. There's another artist uh, from the continent of Africa that depicts this same idea, showing Mary and Joseph with darker skin tones, but basically still riding relatively peacefully on their way. But in truth, it's doubtful that their flight to Egypt was that peaceful. There's a modern-day depiction of the Holy Family that I think causes us to see it with new eyes. In this depiction, the Holy Family are Hispanic migrants walking on foot with the, the satchel that they're carrying, and yet the halos are there to tell us who these people are. This helps us to perhaps get a sense of what is really happening in the story and also connect it to our current context. I mean, in those days, I have to wonder, what was crossing an international border like? I wonder if Mary and Joseph feared being turned away or if they expected to be welcomed. I wonder if they had to plead their case in court. I wonder who took them in once they got to Egypt or were they once again knocking on doors to see who had any room. I wonder how long it took them to get jobs. I wonder if they learned the language of this country of refuge and safety. What was it like? For them to be a young family so far from home, especially having arrived there under such duress. 
And as Jesus was growing up, his parents must have told and retold him the story of his birth and the first few years of his life. And whether or not he had a conscious memory of their time in Egypt, he certainly would have heard that narrative that they themselves were once immigrants, refugees, sojourners, strangers in a foreign land. And I can imagine his father, Joseph, sharing about the dream and how nervous he was as he made the decision to leave Bethlehem. And I can imagine his mother, Mary, sharing how she she held onto him so tightly as they traveled, just praying that they would make it to safety. I can imagine the stories they told of people who welcomed their family and the people who didn't. And the ways that Mary and Joseph must have used those experiences as teaching moments for their young son, telling him things like, we only made it because of the kindness and hospitality of people who didn't even know us. Remember that when you're in a position to show kindness and hospitality to strangers. Surely this experience so early in Jesus' life must have affected his own ministry and the ways that he reached out to people who were traditionally excluded. Mary and Joseph must have also connected their experience to the grand narrative of the Jewish people, which of course focuses on the liberation of the Israelites from slavery in the land of Egypt. And the irony is that the land that was once known for oppression has become the land of salvation for this holy family. And the land that was once the promise of salvation has become the land of oppression in Bethlehem. Because back in Bethlehem, grief and mourning have taken over the land. In this painting, the scene of the massacre of the innocents that we saw last Sunday shows the terror that people must have felt as they fled the soldiers who came to carry out Herod's horrific order. And just as in modern-day war and genocide, many flee, and some make it to safety. Others do not. Countless children two years of age and younger were killed, and in the way that violence happens, there must have been older children and women, perhaps even men, who were sacrificed along the way. Matthew says that when Herod sent soldiers out with the orders for genocide, it was as if Rachel was weeping for her children. Now Rachel is a figure from the Old Testament, a person who passed away many years before, and yet she looms large in the narrative of the Hebrew people. Rachel was Jacob's wife. She gave birth to two children, Joseph and Benjamin. And Genesis chapter 35 tells us that Rachel died while she was giving birth to her second child, Benjamin. She ultimately sacrificed her life for his. And Rachel is considered to be one of the great matriarchs in the Judeo-Christian faith. Her death is grieved by generations to come as a prominent symbol of loss. There is a statue that is called Rachel weeping for her children, and it's actually located in Nebraska, not too far from us. 
It shows her kneeling while holding an empty blanket, which symbolizes the loss of a child. And beside her leg, I don't know if you'll be able to see it very well, but it's on this, uh, this side, there is a rose. And the rose symbolizes new life and hope in the midst of despair. Now in the Gospel of Matthew, when it talks about Rachel weeping, it references Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And that verse is situated in the context of the Babylonians attacking Jerusalem and then taking families off into exile in another country. The prophet Jeremiah says that Rachel, who was now the symbolic mother of the people of Israel, she's been dead for many years at this point. But the prophet Jeremiah says that Rachel is weeping for her children because they are no more. Now, Judaism has a practice of midrash in which the rabbis tell additional stories that, that go alongside the biblical text that help give interpretation to the biblical stories. And they seek, the midrash seeks to answer the questions that people ask. And so in Jewish midrash, there is a story that goes alongside this chapter 31 in Jeremiah, and it's a story about God's response to the tragedy of Babylon attacking Jerusalem. In it, the prophet Jeremiah is calling all of the great patriarchs up from their graves to witness the pain of the exiles as they leave their homes. And each patriarch, when they see what's happening, they respond indignantly to God. They protest the exile. They give reasons why God should stop this atrocity. Moses, Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, many others of the patriarchs, they all join their voices together. But it is not until Rachel, who is also called from her grave, stands before God that the narrative changes from gloom to hope. Because rather than a lengthy, well-crafted theological argument about why God should act, when she stands and sees the people being forced into exile, Rachel weeps. She weeps. She weeps for the pain the exiles feel. She weeps for the land and the homes and the assets that they leave behind. She weeps for the memories that will always be tinged with sadness. She weeps for the journey that they have to make. She weeps for the displacement they feel. She weeps for the powers of this world that have twisted their role into one of self-gain rather than protection for all the people. She weeps for the disenfranchised refugees. According to a Pew Research report that was published in 2019, more than one million immigrants arrive in the U.S. each year. And in the fiscal year 2018, a total of 22,491 refugees were settled in the U.S. Now it is certainly something that refugees long for to be resettled in a peaceful country. And yet there is also much pain and loss as they adjust to a new culture. As a country, our own attitudes towards immigrants and refugees have been shifting, and the perspective has almost flip-flopped in the last 20 years. Currently, 
62% of Americans say immigrants strengthen the country, which is that uh, number on the, it'd be your top right. Whereas 20 years ago, the opposite was true. It was only, uh, it was uh, only 31% of the American public that thought immigrants strengthened the country. On the other hand, in 2019, um, it was only 28% that think that immigrants burden the country by taking jobs and housing and health care. And again, about 20 years ago, it was about the opposite, the 63% that thought that. The other 10% marked somehow in the mix, about 10% that they were unsure or they didn't know. And yet even with this flip, perhaps in our individual attitudes, our political climate around welcoming immigrants and refugees is increasingly tense and continuingly tense. And Rachel's weeping reminds us that these statistics represent real people with real lives who carry their own hopes and heartaches. There is uh, a quote from the famous activist Cesar Chavez when he said, the fight is never about grapes or lettuce, it's always about people. Rachel's weeping also reminds us that the effects of evil and justice and oppression, they're at the heart of our Christian story. They're at the heart of our Christmas story, but that they also live on in our modern story of contemporary life. Pastor Pam Fickenshear writes this, our songs of peace and our public displays of charity have not erased the headlines of child poverty, gun violence, and even genocide. This is a brutal world. Today, the victims are statistically less likely to be Jewish and more likely to be from Darfur, Zimbabwe, or Iraq. But the sounds of Rachel weeping for her children are not uncommon. If we could hear them, they would drown out our cheerful tinny carols every 20 seconds or so. So what does it really mean to resist evil, injustice, and oppression? When we make that vow at our baptism, it should surely mean something important in our lives. At a most basic level, to resist something is to keep it at bay, to fend off its influences or its advance. And the word resist comes from the Latin word, which means to take a stand or to withstand. So to resist evil, injustice, and oppression requires us to take a stand against them, to be active in fending them off. And let us remember that this is part of the covenant that we make with God when we choose to follow Jesus and live a life of faith. What it, I think is so notable is that these baptismal vows that show up in our Methodist tradition, they are, they are echoed in every great expression of the Christian faith, right? It's not just the Methodist Christians that take such a vow to renounce evil, injustice, and oppression. It's also those Presbyterian Christians and the Catholic Christians and the Lutheran Christians, and the list could go on and on. This is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, Rachel weeps 
for the children who die at the hands of King Herod's soldiers. She weeps for the mothers who, whose arms are achingly empty. She weeps for the fathers who wonder what else they could have done. She weeps for a people who weep. And in her weeping, Rachel resists. She stands against the powers of evil, injustice, and oppression by standing in solidarity with the grieving families, with immigrants and refugees. Here's the thing. Sometimes we think that our role as Christians is just to sit idly by, to twiddle our thumbs, and wait for Jesus to come back and to save us. We look around and we see that people's lives are being destroyed. And yet the Bible teaches us that we as Christians are not weak people. We are a strong people, empowered by the strength of God. And the call of the Christian life is to bring about the reign of God, to do something now about evil and injustice and oppression that we have freedom and power from God. And so will you stand in solidarity with those who are disenfranchised? Will you claim the freedom and power that God gives you to be a strong presence for good in the world? Will you join Rachel in living out this baptismal vow to resist evil, injustice, and oppression? Thanks be to God. Amen.